0: BCG believes that creating climate solutions is the defining challenge of our generation. So we're working with leaders everywhere to understand and mitigate the cost of climate inaction. But we're also helping them find ways to innovate, build sustainable businesses, and stay competitive in an evolving world. Stick around to discover the many opportunities in a more sustainable global economy.
1: Welcome to Zero. I am Akshat Rati. This week, old rocks, new politicians and another new climate bill. There's a famous clip from the Australian Parliament back in 2017.
2: This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. The Treasurer knows the rule on crops. It's coal.
1: Scott Morrison, then the Treasurer and soon-to-be Prime Minister, brings a lump of coal into the room and taunts the opposition with it.
2: There's no word for coal officially, Mr. Speaker, but that's the malady that afflicts those opposite.
1: But Over the next few years, even while fires, droughts and floods devastated the country, Morrison was accused of ignoring the threat of climate change. But the electorate could not ignore those impacts. Fast forward to elections in May 2022, and there was a seismic shift in Australian politics. Morrison's Liberal Party took a drubbing at the polls, and he was replaced by Labour's Anthony Albanese. Even more surprising was the success of the Australian Greens and a group of independent candidates known as the Teals, who promised strong climate action. And now the Labour government has done what was, not long ago, unimaginable it has passed a law that binds the country to a 43% emissions reduction by 2030.
2: Anthony Albanese's climate change bill is expected to pass through Parliament after Teal independence and the Greens reportedly secured concessions to support Labour's 43% emissions reduction target.
1: Although the bill is a historic first, many have criticised it for not aligning with what the country must do to help the world reach its climate goals. And Australia's ongoing love affair with fossil fuels raises questions about how it will meet the 43% target. The country is one of the top two exporters of coal and has the third highest CO2 emissions per capita of any G20 country, higher even than the US. This week on Zero, we are joined by two politicians who were key to the passing of the emissions reduction target and are committed to strengthening the goal. Later, we'll hear from international rugby captain turned senator, David Pocock. But my first guest is Adam Bandt, the leader of the Australian Greens. He sits in the House of Representatives and his party holds the balance of power in the country's Senate. We discuss Australia's new political landscape, the fight for better climate legislation and the opportunities for a decarbonised Australia. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Now, after the May 2022 elections, Australia has what some are calling the climate supermajority, with Greens getting their biggest haul and a group of independents known as the Teals voted in on a climate mandate. What's changed in the Australian political discourse that means these candidates succeeded?
3: Look, there's always been an appetite in Australia to take action on climate because people see it playing out. We've just been lacking the federal leadership to do it, uh, especially over the last decade. But we've just come off the back of three years of droughts and bushfires that gain international attention and also then floods And there was a real understanding that the federal government was not only unwilling to act, but was actually actively expanding coal and gas. And in fact, in response to the COVID pandemic, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison led what he called a gas-led recovery to take public money to invest in opening up new gas fields, as if that would somehow be a solution to the economic and social woes facing us after the pandemic. There was this growing sense that the climate crisis was hitting us at home, but also seeing international movement from, from even from conservative governments, from the United Kingdom, for example, but also governments in the United States post-Trump starting to act. It was a real sense that enough was enough and it was time for Australia to act on climate. And now, what we saw at the election was not only a change of government, but a really interesting result where the then government, Scott Morrison's government, and the now government, Anthony Albanese's Labor, both saw their votes go backwards. They both promoted more coal and gas and both saw their votes go backwards And the parties and the people whose vote went up, which was the Greens, um, getting our biggest ever representation in Parliament and our highest ever vote, and a number of independents on strong climate platforms, all tackled the question of climate and coal and gas and said it's time to get out of coal and gas and stop opening up coal and gas. And that's
1: what the people rewarded. As a result of the election, there is now a bill that enshrines an emissions reductions target in law. And that's a 43% reduction over 2005 levels by 2030. Is that what the science says we need to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius?
3: It's definitely not. And the science says that Australia, for it to do its fair share, to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees, would have to be cutting pollution by 74% by 2030, which is, of course, close to the United Kingdom's 68% target. The uh, the independent analysis done in Australia of Australia's fair share also says that even if one were to give up on one and a half degrees and still aim for the well below two degree target of the Paris Agreement, Australia's domestic contribution would need to be 50%. So to be Paris Agreement compliant, Australia would need to be doing between 50 and 74% and it's not. The 43% that the government wouldn't budge from that was in the bill is based on no coal-fired power stations closing earlier than anticipated, and they made that a big election promise. But what we were able to do as the Greens was secure some changes to the bill that would allow it to be ratcheted up quickly without obstacle. We ensured that the target couldn't be reduced if there was a change of government. And uh, for the first time also, we're going to see it harder for government agencies to fund new coal and gas project because climate goals and temperature limits are now going to be included in the governing legislation for a lot of Australia's Agencies like the Export Finance Agency, that in the past has been used to promote fossil fuels and to fund fossil fuel expansion, now that is going to be a bit harder. So, we as the Greens pushed for some changes, secured some changes to a weak bill to the point where we were prepared to pass it. But does it do what the science requires? No. And I suspect not even the government says that it's a science based target.
1: But the bill does not give any new funding, or really beyond the points you made any concrete policy to be able to get to even the 43% target. So is the current law anything more than symbolic?
3: Well you're right that there's no uh, apart from some of the things that I mentioned it doesn't really have a lot of teeth and the government was upfront about that they said they wanted targets enshrined in law to give certainty to the country that there would be emissions reductions but The government is still yet to detail how it's going to meet even this weak target. And that work will be done over coming months as the government lays out its mechanism for requiring existing polluters to start cutting their pollution. And also, critically, how it will deal with the question of proposed new coal and gas projects. That mechanism is going to need the support of the Senate, where the government does not have the majority and where the Greens are sitting in balance of power. So, uh, over the coming months, we'll be pushing very hard to say, having passed this legislation, now we need to give it some teeth and government needs to put some meat on the bones of its policy. And the country will be looking very, very closely at that, not only because there is a very big question about how the government is going to meet even its weak targets, but also because there are some big new coal and gas projects that are in the pipeline that the government is backing. And the expert analysis locally is that there's no way that the government can approve those projects and still expect to meet even its weak 43% target. Some of these projects are so big that if if even just one of them goes ahead, it would blow that 43% target out of the water. So all eyes are now turning to what the government is actually going to do to cut pollution.
1: So that's the science and we need a lot more emissions reduction. But how much support is there from the public, from business and from major polluters to go beyond the 43% target?
3: There's a lot of support from the public uh, and indeed from business as well. Uh, Interestingly, in the lead up to the election, business was saying that a target even closer to 50% would be acceptable in Australia. So in many respects, the um, the government was undercutting what some even in the business community are saying. There's a lot of support from the public, as I've said, for more ambitious action, because we we now have the situation where Less than a third of the country voted for the party that is in government, the Labor Party, and as I referenced before, the parties whose votes went up were the ones who said do more than this 43% target. The push, as I mentioned, through on, on, the business front, where there's going to be a real issue is how much work is government going to ask existing business to do to cut pollution And how much harder is that going to be for existing business to cut pollution if the government builds in space to open up new projects? So to to take one of them, for example, the Beedaloo Basin in the Northern Territory, that project alone, if it goes ahead, would lift Australia's domestic emissions by up to 13%, and it's not included in the 43% modelling. That would in turn impose a lot more obligations on existing business to make way for these big climate busting projects, and that's why I think you'll see over coming months, a greater community push, including with business side by side, to say, we can't keep addressing this problem at the same time as making the problem worse. You can't put the fire out while you're pouring petrol on it. And I think one of the things that needs to be understood is just how central coal and gas are to the Australian political economy. And Australia is the world's third largest exporter of fossil fuel pollution and on track to be, if not already, the largest exporter of gas, primarily in the form of LNG. And so all of this raises real questions as to how Australia is going to contribute to the climate challenge. And these big coal and gas corporations have a lot of sway over the government. Uh, We'll be pushing really, really hard as the government writes these new laws and regulations to actually now start cutting pollution to say, Look, we, we'll have the debate about how quickly to get out of coal and gas, but we've got to draw a line under existing projects and say no more new projects. And that's going to be one of the big battles over coming months.
1: Now, how politically feasible is it anyway, given, let's consider Norway, which is an oil exporting country that has both its major political parties completely in agreement that oil continues to be the source of revenue, that they will continue to support oil extraction. And yet it's done domestically pretty green things. You know, it's blessed with hydropower, it's been electrifying its transport very quickly, but it still hasn't been able to get rid of the addiction to oil. Why do you think Australia can do it?
3: Well, because our big trading partners have all set themselves net zero targets. So the the, the Countries that are responsible for 75% of our coal exports, our thermal coal exports, have all set themselves net zero by 2050 or 2060 targets. Now, if you work backwards from that, that means they're going to have to decarbonise their electricity sectors sometime around the 2030s if they're going to meet a 2050 net zero target across the economy. So, in other words, they've already given... Australia a deadline about getting out of coal. Similarly, with gas, the growing demand from trading partners in Asia in particular is for hydrogen. And is that's going to be one of the key ways that those economies are going to be able to meet their own climate goals and their own net zero emissions goals. So the outlook for these exports at the moment is bleak. But Australia itself actually, when it comes to gas, for example, does not get a lot. Um, It's primarily, it's big multinationals that are extracting and often uh, paying no tax and in many instances, not even paying royalties on the gas itself. So in Australia, 27 big gas corporations in one year bought in $77 billion Australian of revenue in one year, and paid zero dollars tax on it. So hmm. unlike Norway, um, where they have at least a tax system that enables them to gain some wealth from the fossil fuels that they're exporting to help drive a domestic transformation, Australia's not even getting that. There's enormous, enormous state capture of the political parties in Australia by these big gas and coal corporations. But it actually doesn't deliver back to the economy what. Um, A lot of people might think it does. And so there's enormous opportunities economically for Australia to get off it. And also that's the way it's going because that's where our trading
1: partners are going. But look at what has happened to commodity prices because of the war that Russia is uh, fighting in Ukraine. Isn't that going to be the exact argument for more digging of coal and more LNG projects and perhaps even more mining of metals?
3: Well, I don't think building an economy off the back of a dictator invading another country and hoping that somehow that will continue is a good model either for foreign affairs or for your domestic economic security. Like we have to diversify. Australia's economy absolutely has to diversify. And I think if there's one lesson that can be taken from this is that it is uh, not a good idea to be reliant on fossil fuel imports from another country. Like that is the object lesson that comes out of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And this is where for Australia in particular, we have an enormous opportunity to be energy independent and to be selling the rest of the world our sun and our wind. The prospects of direct undersea cables, across places like Singapore or Indonesia, for example, where you generate the electricity from on the mainland Australia are actively being discussed and funded at the moment. There is growing investment in green hydrogen. I mean, we are pretty blessed here in this country with sun and wind and an advanced manufacturing capacity and intellectual capacity. We can sell things to other countries other than coal and gas. And we know the sun and the wind will always be free.
1: Multiple Labour politicians use the phrase, as long as people want to buy our coal, we'll sell it to them during the election. That is starkly different from your view. How can those two views meet up? Do you anticipate lengthy fierce battles on climate ahead? What is your red line?
3: Well, there's a Something that our former prime minister used to say, which is that Australia has got to sell its coal to other countries and can't stop selling it because otherwise they'll buy it from somewhere else and uh, it won't be as good. And the new prime minister from the different side of politics has started saying exactly the same thing. He started saying, well, Australia needs to sell coal. And in fact, some of his ministers have said Australia will be still selling coal out past the 2050s. This idea that if we don't sell it to them, then someone else will. I call that the drug dealer's defence. It's like if you don't buy it from me, then you're going to get worse quality stuff from someone around the corner so I'm actually somehow performing a public service. Like Coal, wherever it is burnt, whether it's burnt here or whether it's burnt overseas, harms Australia and it harms the rest of the world. Like there is no such thing as clean coal and I think people have seen through it and some of the biggest public campaigns and on-the-ground mobilizations here have been against big new coal mines in Australia. The Adani coal mine that was here was the feature of the previous election, the one before this. There is widespread support to say, stop opening up these coal mines. And I think people just don't buy this idea anymore that Australia's got to sell it to them because otherwise they'll get it from somewhere else. I think Australia has such a large share of the global thermal coal market that any shift from Australia will have repercussions and ripples right around the world. And if Australia stopped doing it, then I reckon it wouldn't be that others would step in. It would send a really clear signal to the rest of the world that coal's days were over. I think the second thing that we probably need to put on the table front and centre is what is an economic diversification and support and transition plan for coal and gas workers and communities? What does that look like? And that hasn't really been thought through that well in um, from governments in the past, and that has created the space for scare campaigns. I think part of what we've got to do in this parliament is to say we need a plan to support coal and gas workers through the transition.
1: Specifically, though, what is your red line while you're in power And these discussions are going on.
3: Look, the Australian Greens have a policy of getting out of thermal coal by 2030, both for domestic and export use, and metallurgical coal by 2040. Um, But what we're putting on the table at the moment in this term of parliament is a compromise position let's just stop opening up new coal and gas projects. And we can then have a discussion about how we get out of it, um, whether we have a managed exit by 2030, whether the government's got some other idea. But what we're putting on the table in all the negotiations we'll be having with the government is stop opening up new projects. That should be something that everyone can agree on. Now, we weren't able to get their agreement to that during the climate legislation negotiations, and that was disappointing. But that was round one. Right. The next round will come when the government introduces the regulations to explain how it's going to cut pollution, and we'll be looking very closely to see whether that allows new coal and gas projects. Because as I say, that is something that will need the support of the Senate, where the Greens are in the balance of power. We're also going to push for our environment laws to include what's called a climate trigger, which is to say, when you give environmental assessment approval to um, to new projects. At the moment, you don't even have to take into account whether it's going to make climate change worse. We want that to change. And the last thing that we will push for, that we are saying very, very strongly to this new government is stop giving subsidies to coal and gas. There's about $11 billion Australian of subsidies per year at the federal level that go effectively to the coal and gas industries. So we're saying stop funding them, put a climate trigger in our laws, stop opening up new coal and gas mines. They're the positions that we are putting on the table and that we are going to fight tooth and nail for in this term of parliament.
1: Now, in the elections, the Conservative Liberal Party, which might confuse some people listening to the podcast, but the Conservative Liberal Party lost some of its safest seats to climate positive candidates. Is being anti-climate action now a dead position in Australia?
3: I think it's a- absolutely, uh, if not dead, it's on life support. Uh, the, and I think people shouldn't underestimate the significance of this. We saw conservative seats switch to candidates that have a better climate policy than the new Labor government. Uh, you, have, you, you saw conservative seats prepared to vote for a candidate that says, we need a transition plan out of coal and gas and I want you to stop opening up coal and gas mines and 43% is far too weak. And we saw conservative seats go to the Greens as well. So it's not just progressive Labor seats that went to the Greens, it was conservative Liberal seats that switched to the Greens for the first time. You get rewarded in Australia politically now for having a better policy on climate. I don't think the penny's quite dropped with the new government yet that there is now space for them to go further and faster.
1: That was a fascinating conversation. Thanks, Adam.
3: Thanks very much.
1: After the break, we'll hear from Senator David Pocock, one of the new crop of independent politicians Adam is talking about and whose journey from rugby to politics has made him a deciding vote in Australia's upper house.
0: Today's leaders face many hard choices, confronted with uncertainty, cost pressures, and growing shareholder demands. But they don't have to choose between pursuing climate and business goals. In fact, BCG research suggests that these ambitions go hand in hand. Did you know at least 40% of executives at large organizations estimate an annual financial benefit of $100 million for meeting emissions reduction targets, according to recent BCG research? BCG also found that transitioning to the circular economy could help unlock $4.5 trillion of GDP growth by 2030. The cost of inaction, however, is profound. In fact, further analysis indicates that missing climate targets could result in an average annual EBITDA reduction of 15%. At BCG, our experts recognize the myriad benefits, from risk mitigation to first-mover advantage, that come with sustainability. Let's partner to unlock a better sustainability journey.
1: Welcome back. Joining me now is David Pocock, one of Australia's most celebrated rugby players who captained the Wallabies and played for the team between 2008 and 2019. In 2021, David moved into politics and beat a conservative incumbent to become the first independent candidate to ever win the Senate seat for the Australian Capital Territory which includes Canberra. Alongside the Greens, his vote was crucial for passing Australia's 43% emissions reduction target. David, welcome to Zero.
2: Thanks, Asha. Good to be with you.
1: You've had a fascinating career. You captained Australia's international rugby union team, you've campaigned on social issues like marriage equality, and now you're an independent senator in Australia's upper house with the deciding vote when it comes to climate legislation. Where did your climate journey begin?
2: So I grew up in Zimbabwe and moved to Australia as a teenager. And in high school, really enjoyed geography. So started learning about climate change. It seemed like something we should be paying a bit more attention to back then. And I guess that urgency has just grown. And over the years, whilst I was playing rugby professionally, I was involved in some community development work back in Zimbabwe. And talking to rural subsistence communities and just hearing their concerns about the changing climate and their inability to really adapt. They, you know, it's, they simply don't have the funds that wealthy countries have to actually adapt. And they've contributed almost nothing to the problem. That really heightened my interest in it, and I guess really spurred my advocacy and, and wanting to use whatever platform I had while I was playing rugby to get more people talking about it, particularly here in Australia. We're a huge fossil fuel exporter and uh, probably no surprise, we've been a climate laggard. We've we've actually frustrated international talks. It's just not it's not good enough for Australia to be doing that. We have to actually be part of the conversation, part of the solution to this global challenge.
1: As part of your urgency on climate you got arrested in 2014 chaining yourself to a coal digger what was that like you know what made you want to take that step
2: like so many people i'd been involved in a bunch of campaigns marches protests writing letters petitions and then there was this this coal mine that was one in one of australia's best agricultural areas and two within that area in, in the middle of a critically endangered ecosystem made absolutely no sense to me in terms of the environmental impact, the impact on farmers, and obviously the, the climate impact of opening up a brand new coal mine. You know, got, got to know one of the, the farmers who now lives next door to this big coal mine, and having grown up on a farming family, I could sympathize and, and see just how helpless and, and unrepresented you feel but then just decided that I needed to actually make make that stand alongside him and you know, hundreds of other people who were arrested on that mine site. And the mine went ahead, but a very similar project a few years later didn't go ahead. So whilst unsuccessful, I think it added to the, the conversation around opening up new coal mines, given all we know about climate change.
1: Yeah. And then why did you finally decide to make this jump from being a political mm-hmm. activist to a politician?
2: After rugby, I was involved in an agriculture and conservation project in Zimbabwe. We spent most of last year there, and halfway through the year was approached by a community group here in in Canberra, where I live, saying, we think that there is a pathway for an independent to represent the ACT, the Australian Capital Territory, in the federal parliament. If we can get the right candidate, we've been having all these kitchen table conversations, your name keeps coming up, would you consider it? And initially didn't think it was for me. But, the more, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I thought this is this is an amazing opportunity to potentially represent a community I love on all these issues that are important to me, are important to the people that I'd be representing, but we're not seeing the kind of ambition that we, we need. We're not seeing politicians actually deal with these big challenges we face in a way that turns them into opportunities for all of us. So I thought, well, if I don't do this, I'll probably regret it. I don't want to sit sit around after the election in a few years' time, thinking what could have happened. And so I put my hand up. And having never, you know, been part of a political party or being formally involved in politics, it was it was a wild ride. Really, really enjoyable and energising. Just seeing the amount of community support and building a campaign that was really crowdsourcing a policy platform that resonated with people. And we've we've seen across the country, a record number of independents voted into the lower house and then also the, the Senate.
1: Now, let's just sit with that for a moment, because it is hard. Many countries have two major political parties. That's the case here in the UK, where I live. You have the Conservative Party and you have the Labour Party. That's the case in the US, which is essentially a two-party system with the Democrats and the Republicans. And that was the case in Australia for a long time. Of course, there were other parties, but those two parties, the Liberal uh, and National Coalition and Labour, were really the the two major forces. What happened in the last few years, you think, that's changed Australia's landscape so drastically, allowing independents to make it in the parliament?
2: I think that a number of... Factors One, just the underlying dissatisfaction with politics as usual. And then on on top of that, having in the last parliament a few independents who were actually talking about the issues that people are concerned about, talking about more ambitious climate action, talking about integrity in politics. And then a number of candidates decided to actually run, and there was a group set up to actually help fundraise for these independent candidates.
1: The group David is talking about is Climate 200. A crowdfunded organization that raised millions of dollars to support the campaigns of 23 candidates running as independents or for minor parties in this year's election.
2: We see money in in politics. The the sad reality is that you need money to actually be able to, to win to run a good campaign. And for the first time that wasn't a problem for, for many of these independent candidates. They they were well resourced they were talking about things that that mattered and on the back of that we saw tens of thousands of Australians who hadn't previously got involved in politics volunteering campaigning you know here in here in canberra a city of 420,000 people uh, i had over 2200 volunteers it was really energizing and i think you know left everyone feeling a, a little bit more hopeful about the future
1: now, the bill enshrines emissions reductions in law, which is 43% from 2005 levels by 2030. What do you see as the priority legislation to pass to ensure Australia meets this target?
2: Well, it's it's historic in Australia just to actually legislate a target. Having 43% by 2030 and net zero by 2050 in law is a step forward. But this is nothing to sit around patting ourselves on the backabout. And even the business community here in Australia has been pushing 50% by 2030. So clearly, we have to ensure that this, this 43% is just a starting point. It's largely symbolic. And now we've got to get on with the business of transforming our entire economy, working on the generation side of things, and then beginning to work on the demand side, working with households to actually ensure that they can reap the significant benefits of electrifying their households. You know That's the challenge. This has never been done before, but that's the opportunity. So for me, it's about ensuring that we have a target locked in. I'd like to see that ramp up over time, but then to actually be focusing on the integrity of it. So the integrity of the offsets that we're allowing companies to use for their hard to abate emissions, the focus on Communities that for generations have had jobs in fossil fuels, we need to be investing in those areas, ensuring that that those communities have secure, well-paid jobs into the future.
1: Australia is the third largest exporter of fossil fuels. Coal, gas are major parts of the economy. And fossil fuels continue to make the country a vast amount of money. How do you ensure that this continued prosperity can happen while you move away from the extraction and export of coal and gas.
2: You know, Australia is the developed country that stands to lose the most from climate inaction. We're seeing huge warming already, and we're seeing the effects of that. But given our renewable resources, we also potentially stand to gain the most from actually having the political courage to act and to act decisively and to become a renewable superpower. We've got huge deposits of things like lithium, which we need for batteries. And we've got huge renewable resources that we could potentially be exporting to our our neighbours. All of these take time to develop, so we've got to get cracking.
1: Do you support the calls to end all fossil fuel projects? And do you believe there's any chance that the incumbent Labour government will ever agree to such a proposal?
2: Well, if you're going to listen to scientists... We, we can't have any new coal and gas projects. That's clear. IPCC was so clear about that. I support that. We simply cannot afford in the long term to be opening up new reserves of, of fossil fuels. The challenge for Australia is to be building these industries for the future at the same time as we're phasing out fossil fuels. Politically, to be blunt, no, I, I, I can't see the government going for it in the the current political climate. But I think societal, societal attitudes towards climate change, towards the social license that fossil fuel companies have, is changing so fast that hopefully it'll be possible very soon.
1: So now I don't know if anybody's made this comparison before, but your vote in the Senate is like Joe Manchin's vote in the U.S. Senate you'll be deciding whether to let a legislation go through or not many other times. Joe Manchin, of course, had to play both sides and had to make compromises on the the climate side. You could be playing the opposite role of pushing it even higher and higher in ambition. Is that a fair comparison?
2: So in the Australian Senate at the moment, there's probably three people that the government could get a vote from in terms of climate. So yeah, there's there's real opportunity there to actually be pushing the ambition and to be shaping policy to ensure that it is working for everyday Australians, that climate action is actually starting to address some of the cost of living issues that we're seeing. The thing I said to people in Canberra during the election campaign was my commitment to people is on every piece of legislation, I'm going to hold it up and say, how does this affect the people of the Australian Capital Territory that I represent? How does this square with the kind of future that we want to create? And then use whatever power I have on the crossbench with that potential balance of power vote to ramp up the ambition and to suggest amendments that make it better, that improve the legislation coming through the Senate.
1: At the last COP conference, which was held here in the UK in Glasgow in 2021, Australia was awarded the Colossal Fossil Award for its ongoing support for fossil fuels. As we approach COP in November, which will be in Egypt this year, where do you think this climate bill leaves Australia?
2: I was at uh, COP in Glasgow, and as an Australian, it was was embarrassing to see the way we were acting on the world stage. Even our Australian pavilion, we had a gas company front and centre of our display. So, I think this legislation is an announcement that we're back at the table we're, we're there to be constructive. I expect there'll be a big focus on support for developing countries, uh, given it's in Africa and that's what Australia needs to be doing here in here in the Pacific. We have to be stepping up our engagement and our support of our Pacific neighbours to deal with what is for them and ex- many of them an existential threat and so i don't I don't think forty three percent does that, but it's, it certainly signals to the world that we're no longer, hopefully not going to be obstructionist and try and water down future agreements.
1: David, thanks for joining me.
2: Cheers, thanks for having me.
1: Given Australia's status as one of the largest exporters of fossil fuels, what happens there affects the world. As climate impacts have piled on, it's forced a change in the politics of the country, with independence becoming a force to reckon with. But it couldn't have happened without concerted effort of those organizing around a cause. Thanks so much for listening to Zero. If you like the show, please rate, review and subscribe. Tell a friend or tell an undecided voter. If you've got a suggestion for a guest or topic or something you just want us to look into, get in touch at zeropod at bloomberg.net. Zero's producer is Oscar Boyd and senior producer is Christine Driscoll. Our theme music is composed by Wonderly. Many people help make the show a success. This week, thanks to my Bloomberg News colleague in Australia, Ben Westcott, who cannot be stopped when he has a scoop. I'm Akshat Rati, back next week.